we can uh, gather everybody in. Seems like everybody's real busy in fellowship today, which is awesome. But if we can pull it in, make most of our time, be great. Welcome again. But I open in prayer, and then we're going to go ahead and jump right in today. So, Lord, I do thank you for this morning. Um, we're just getting going. Our minds are going. Our bodies are moving. And I just pray that you would stir our beings this morning as we hear your word. You would stir within each one of us um, a desire to know you more, to see ourselves rightly before you, and to recognize this reality, Lord, that this unbelievable grace and honor and privilege that we get to communicate you to a world. And so we pray this morning as we reflect on what you actually did in history, Lord, and how you interacted with people, it will teach us and encourage us and um, give us a lot of uh, ideas in our own minds. I, I pray even as we think through these things that there'll be people that come through our minds. So we look forward to our time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I didn't do as good a job on PowerPoint this morning, so um, usually I have kind of a fade in, so don't get too distracted by everything that's up there until we get to it. But if you would turn with me this morning, I want to look at, uh, we're going to look this week at a contrast that Jesus does. There's a number of lessons to learn from this, but you can see the title of the, the PowerPoint, The Proud and the Contrite. The Proud and the Contrite, and, and you'll see a lot of these uh, passages, and I wrote a number of them. I'm not sure we'll get to all of them this morning. I'm going to watch my time as I want to get to the observations, you know, the application. Uh, so we'll get through the ones we can. But I wanted them on here so you could see those for those that are taking notes. If you wanted to go home, these would be great passages. There's a lot more like these too. So if you turn to Luke 7, <clears throat> to begin with, I'll probably spend most of my time here this morning. <clears throat> Um, just notice here now, this, uh, yeah, let's, I'll start in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with her hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. Now let's start there. I want to get down 40 through 50 before we're done. But you see the setting here. They're, they're having this banquet. Make sure I hit a few of my notes here. Um, there's this dinner. A lot of times when they had these banquets they, in, in, in Jerusalem there, um, it was kind of an open area that would be like on the front of a house. So people walking around the streets could actually come in and see the dinner. So it's not like just a doorway like we have. There's kind of an openness. And so people would come and stand on the side and watch and listen to what's going on. And so um, if you notice here right away, uh, when the Pharisees requesting the house table, there was a woman in the city. They were reclining. And what we'll see as we go on here is that there were the ordin there's ordinary um, uh, courtesies, you know, washing your feet, giving you a blessing, kissing you. And all of those, interesting enough, Simon just blew right past and didn't even do those with Jesus, which would have been very obvious to people. 
So on one hand, as this religious leader, he wants to invite Jesus in and say, come and have dinner with me, hang out with me, I want to know what you're about. But on the other hand, he's not extending courtesy. He's letting everybody know, I'm holding this guy at an arm's distance. Okay, And so, um, anyway, what you notice here is Jesus doesn't really say anything about this till later in the narrative because uh, he tolerated this mistreatment. And we'll get to that. But he tolerated this mistreatment. And then if you notice, uh, reclined a table, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. This idea of sinner is a harlot, you know, a prostitute. She, she was known as being this prostitute. And then she comes in and she breaks this vial of this expensive perfume. And certainly standing behind him and his feet is weeping. She begins to wet his feet with her tears. And you, you guys got the narrative. Um, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so he, question, he questions Jesus being a prophet, uh, he says, if this man was a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this is. So the first thing he recognized, saying, I don't think Jesus is a prophet. Secondly, he wouldn't hang out with this kind of woman and allow this to go on. And so clearly he's a false prophet. And so this kind of sets up the whole scenario, Okay. And so now Jesus is there. This is happening. You've got to wonder what's going on in this woman that she's actually willing to, you know, break this vial. It's probably her most expensive possession. She uses it for her trade, if you will. And she weeps with Jesus and wets his feet with her tears in this, in this perfume. And it clearly looks like some kind of repentance going on, doesn't it? Something going on. Now look what Jesus does. And there's a bunch of things for us to learn here. So... Um, <clears throat> Verse, go to verse 40. And Jesus answered him. Okay, Jesus knows what he's thinking. Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replies, well, say it then, teacher. So he, he goes, I, I, you know, I, I have something I want to share with you. I have something I want to do, okay? And he says, say it. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Now look what Jesus does again. So which of them will love him more? Jesus poses this question. He sets up this story, he tells this quick story, and then he puts the weight of the story by a question on the Pharisee, right? He says, so which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Even that word suppose in our English, there's this sense in which he's reluctant to actually give the answer. But Jesus is asking him a question that really does put his back in a corner. Like he has to answer this question. Well, I suppose, right? And, he, and Jesus said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Now, again, those would all have been customary things that Simon should have done, and he didn't. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Okay? Now, that's a bold statement. I hope you all know that. That's a statement of deity. Okay? Her sins are forgiven, because this question comes... Those who were reclined at table began to say to themselves, who is this man who can forgive this? Right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? These are Pharisees. They, they know. Who can forgive sins but God? Jesus is pronouncing this forgiveness. 
And then he says to the woman, said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Your faith has saved you, go in peace. So there's a number of things when we think, I mean, first of all, this would be just a great passage to preach on. And so there's a lot of things to draw from this. But when we're thinking in terms of evangelism, just realize, so, so the scenario sets itself up. Jesus begins to ask questions. We brought that up before. He asked questions. Hey, I, I have a question for you, Simon. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and then he goes, proceeds to tell a story, which is really, really a way of communicating and illustrative uh, and <clears throat> telling stories. Um, further, what he gets Simon to do, if you notice here, but he asks a great question. Of course, Jesus is the genius, right? He asks this question to get Simon to answer rightly. In other words, Simon asks, answers it rightly. I suppose it's the one who was forgiven the most. Who loves the most. And so it's a really subtle thing here that Jesus actually calls out Simon and gets him to recognize this reality, recognize what's going on, recognize the truth that he's trying to teach. And Simon, if you will, again, his back's kind of in a corner and he has to answer the question. So there's just a wonderful, and again, I would tell you to go back and read through this and you'll see what's going on here. And what's clear, even in the title, is there's this contrast here of a judgmentalism a proud judgmentalism, a legalism that says, and you think about, think about Simon the Pharisee. Again, this would be a little more preaching, but think of the context. His standards by which he is making these judgments actually comes from the Bible. And he's a Pharisee. He's looking at the Old Testament. He said, but he set himself up as the standard, and he's comparing everybody to himself as the standard. But the contrite, the broken one, right, as this woman represents, she doesn't have time to even pay attention to anybody else. There's no standard by, by which she's applying to anybody else. She sees that she's standing before the standard of God himself. Right? That's, that's contrition. Big difference. Big difference. And that's how it looks like she comes to faith in Christ here. Let's look at another one. Um, look, look with me at Luke 10, where he does some similar kind of things. Luke 10, 25. Another story, this is a little bit different than the rich young ruler that we uh, looked at before. Which, by the way, too, I just for the sake of, again, it would come in a little more preaching. But when we just read that text, as we were reading about that, this looks in the scriptures like this is not the same anointing that Jesus got much later with Mary, of, um, Mary Magdalene. This looks like a different woman that showed up in this story, and we could get into all of that. But it's the same thing here. Now we go to another lawyer, another person of the law. And we go to verse 25 of Luke 10. And look what Jesus does again here. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? See, see how Jesus, does? Jesus answers his question with a question. What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Right? But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And then look what Jesus does again. So he's asked some questions. He's kind of set up the scenario. And now he's going to tell a story. See, see the process, what he's doing here? He tells a story. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, which were despised by the Jews, right, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay it. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? You see? He asked him a question, and what's the guy has to say? You can almost call Jesus a, prof, you know, a provocateur, right? Like, like he knows why he's asking the question. And he's, he's putting the guy on a spot where he has to, has to answer. And the man said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So you see this pattern of Jesus asking questions and interacting with people to expose the truth, even of what they believe, even if it's wrong. And then he uses stories to, uh, to work on that. Let's look at another one about the proud and contrite, another familiar passage. Let's go to Luke 18. Okay? Luke 18, Jesus is doing a bunch of teaching here. And he, he tells another story, verse 9. And he told this story to some people, or a parable, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. See, again the scenario. He's, he's looking at these people, and we'll get into them when we get to the observations. But he's making a, an assessment. Now Jesus is God, right? He can look right into the heart of these people. But we can do the same thing. We can look at people and say, I, I suspect this person's coming from this posture, this position. What is it they need? Where, where do I enter into this conversation with them about the gospel? So Jesus, you, you see here, he's looking at these people who really look up upon their own righteousness and they use their own standard, right, to judge everybody else. He says this, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector. This Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Isn't that actually? The Pharisee's praying to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, uh, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes uh, of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus speaking now, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a powerful story. Convicting, right? Uh, let's look at one more. Let's look at Mark, and then we'll come back and draw some, tease out some observations in our time this morning. Look at uh, Mark 11, 27, I think it is, yeah. Mark eleven twenty seven, And you'll see, again, this kind of same kind of questioning, asking questions, telling stories. 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, here we go again, I will ask you one question. And you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, <clears throat> he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say, but shall we say from men? 
they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in a parable. See, we go back to this again. He asks his questions. He has these interactions. Now he's going to tell a story to try to even highlight more what he's been trying to get at. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, uh, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He asked him this question. What will he do? What do you think the, what, what do you think the owner of this vineyard is going to do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you never read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12, And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. They knew exactly why he was asking the questions. They knew exactly what the, what the story was about, right? I mean, it, it brought it right to light. And so there's a one, number of wonderful observations we can make about these things, okay, about all of this. First of all, we, and some of these will be things we've hit on before, but think about this. Hospitality. There's still, and I've, I've emphasized it, I think almost every week, there's something about the dinner table as a natural place for fellowship and witness. There's something about bringing people into your home or going to their home. Jesus did it all the time. We see it all the time. And you guys know, I see some of you nodding. There's something about that and that fellowship of, of bringing people into a space or you going into their space that allows you to go to deeper levels of conversation with people. It's very real. Uh, think of the second one here, tolerating mistreatment for the sake of the witness. <clears throat> Jesus went into the Simon's home <clears throat> and he was mistreated. And then later in the narrative, he says something about it. But early on, he didn't say anything about it. There's something about being tolerating mistreatment for the sake of a larger witness. We're going into a world. We're going cross-cultural. There's a sense in which we're all missions. We're going into a different culture, a pagan culture, and bringing a message. And we live a crucified life, which means they might not like you. Right? We don't give them any undue reason to uh, dislike us. But you accept it. Another thing you see here, emotions can reveal the heart. Emotions can reveal the heart. You see the heart of this woman in her emotions, in her tears. However, look at interesting at the end, at the end of that narrative. Uh, in fact, let's go back there. Let's go back to Luke real quick. I want you to see the last, the, Luke 7. Just go to the last words in there because it's important in light of what we're doing here with this evangelism study. Notice what he says to her. In verse 50, and he said to the woman, what's he say? Did he say your tears, your emotions? What was it that saved you? Your faith has saved you. You see, those tears, a lot of people, a lot of actors put on tears, right? Actresses can put on tears. So the tears don't always tell you everything. People can put on a show. 
But often it does reveal something, but what it really reveals in this case, and he says, your faith has saved you. See, he acknowledges it's her trust in him. It's her faith that saves her. And then he says, go in peace. And actually, the, the text there, it says, go into peace. It's like, it's like the idea of entering into eternal life. Like, like, it's not something that happens later, like enter into it now. Go into rest. Go into peace. And what has saved you? Your faith. It wasn't even her action, right? But her action did demonstrate something. That's the point. Her action looked like something's going on. And it's interesting when you communicate with people. You, um, I think of a young guy one time when I was, a young, I was a young Christian just learning to share my faith, and he came to my home, and we began to talk about the gospel. And I'll never forget him sitting at uh, uh, our first home, my wife and I's first home, sitting there at the table, and he was just shaking. Tears were in his eyes. He was just shaking. He was under such conviction, and I wasn't, you know, I was just talking to him, and I couldn't believe. And I said, this is like, real, you know, you could see it in him. The movement in him is very powerful. So that can mean something in people's lives. Another one, appreciation for kindness inspire greater devotion. Don't ignore gestures of love. And again, I, I think I brought that up last week, even service. People, people want to extend something to you, and there's actually an affection there that can actually develop between people, an intimacy for communication, because they're trying to serve you. They're trying to do something. They want to give you a gift. They want to bless you. You'll find this with people. They want to give you a little thing. Accept that. Receive that. And realize that behind that is something deeper going on. That's the point. Um, <clears throat> story. <clears throat> Jesus was always telling stories. Story, 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 story. I was thinking about this with uh, some of the travels we've done in Africa and Egypt. It's interesting. We, we teach when we go there. We really want them to understand your Bible. The Word of God <clears throat> gives them everything they need for life and godliness. So when we talk about church planning and apologetics and evangelism and leadership, <clears throat> all we do when we go there is really open up the Scriptures, and we teach it all week long, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day to these leaders in different areas of Africa. But it's been fascinating to us <clears throat> about usually near the end of the week we'll do a, a, what we would call kind of a Q&A time. And you'll have a couple hundred people out here. And they start asking you questions, and it's very interesting. They ask you very few questions about the things you've been teaching all week. Every once in a while, a little bit. What they, what they really want to know is, who gave you your name? What's your name mean? Tell us about your family. Tell us about the struggles you've had in life and ministry. Tell us a, a beautiful thing in your family. Tell us a difficult thing in your family. And, Sometimes in those settings, I've shared a little bit about this, uh, a child we have that's been, well, she's, she's an adult now, but it's been a difficult chapter for us. And the place will just break out in prayer. I mean, people will stand up for the next 15 or 20 minutes and just cry and pray over the story they just heard of our family. And they will tell me for the next two days that they were up all night praying. And it's just fascinating, like, of the whole week, the thing that energized those people were stories. Stories of our lives. And here we've been teaching the word all week long. And it spoke to them. They appreciated it. They loved it. But there was something about when we said, oh, this is where it really played itself out. This is that, that thing we talked about, the apostles. This is where we saw it work over here. That's the thing that, it's like, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. It's amazing. So stories, truth readily perceived and applied. It illustrates. You see this. You see Jesus doing this, right? Even exposing them, them, exposing their sin. I mean, he exposed Simon's sin, didn't he? And so a story actually exposed something. Um, <clears throat> here's another one. Can I tell you a story? Can I ask you, tell you something? 
there's a sense in which you ask people permission for things. Can I just share with something, take three minutes with you and share with you what's the most important relationship in my life? Somebody said, oh, sure. Boom. Said, can, can I tell you a story? Can I tell you something? Yeah, tell me. tell me. Tell me what you want to tell me. See, there's something about that that they've accepted from you what you're about to deliver. It's not just putting it in their face. Let's go on to some other observations here. Questions. Again, it gets people to think. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you something. And now, if you think about this, this there's, a, there's a certain art in asking questions. It sort of means that you're thinking ahead of time of this person, of this situation, and the questions you would like to ask to try to expose something. And again, go back and read those narratives and study Jesus. He was always asking these questions, getting people to think. It helps apply, and it helps a person speak or discover the point. You see this in, in, uh, in counseling. There's something in a, in a counseling setting. Let's say you're in a, a biblical counseling marriage setting, and you're working on some marriage thing. It'd be one thing for the counselor just to tell you they see something. They've heard the conversation, and they actually see something, and they could probably just tell you. But there's something grand about a counselor who can ask you the question and you see it. And then you answer it and you go, ah. See, because it's like the light goes on. It's different than them telling you. So, I mean, and I could give you a bundle of examples of that. But it's, there's something about exposing that for a person that they see it themselves. And then when they voice it even, man, it's a powerful thing. So, I, I, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but there is a sense in which that's an art. I didn't know what else to say to you. It's not, it's, you know, even in a class like this, how do you teach that skill? It's almost like you just got to communicate with people and be thinking ahead and be thinking of questions you could ask a person. I think of one story I was thinking about in this. There was a, a young man here in town. He was an officer in the military, and I got to know him. And I sense that he may struggle a little bit, probably, with, you know, with, with some sexual deviancy and struggles in his life. And I asked him, I asked him a question. I said, so, you know, what was your relationship with your dad like? I'm just curious. I hated my dad. So I said, so have you had struggle with, you know, relationships with men, adult men? Yeah. I said, did you ever find yourself having, like, maybe wrongful kind of attractions towards men? And he just sat there and looked with a blank stare, and he said, how did you know? And I mean, I, and the reason I preface the story is he was this military-looking guy, and it wasn't like he was playing some game that sometimes people put on all sorts of display you might never know and he said how did you know and it was amazing from that a relationship developed he started coming out hanging out at my home and seriously it was like five six seven years after he left here he called me from another state so i just wanted to call you and tell you what's going on in my life and he was he was on a good track he was he was doing well and uh, he just said i'll never forget that day when you asked me that question sitting sitting down at a coffee shop on mass street he said i just couldn't believe it i couldn't believe you could see that and I did, didn't necessarily, I just kind of, kind of, I wonder where this goes, you know. And so I started asking these questions, boom, exposed this whole world for him that he literally was so stunned by that, that years later he's calling me to thank me for asking him those questions. Pretty cool. All right, <clears throat> forgiveness, oh, let's see, Jesus, okay, I, we've been saying this right along. Jesus is not a proposition. There must be a sincere openness to truth and a worship of God. It's coming to a person. That's what we've been saying, right? You're coming to the person of Christ. Now, we don't ever deviate from the word. You can't, in a real sense, you can't separate Jesus from his word, right? The word of God is Jesus. But it's not a rote, 
proposition about Jesus. It's coming to Christ himself. And when a person comes to Christ, this is what you see in this, this woman. There's an utter brokenness. If she recognizes her sin, she recognizes who Jesus is, and it actually affects a human person. It's not just an idea. Okay? Forgiveness and peace for one's past life, it's compa- that's a compelling thing. You know, you go to Romans 1, actually people know they're guilty. People actually do. They actually know, and it's a great work of the Spirit to bring that kind of conviction on human beings. And people will do everything they can to escape it. They will use drugs, they will use alcohol, they will use pleasures, they will gather themselves around people who have the same kind of sin, so we can all kind of feel good together. But they lay down at night, before they go to bed, they know. Terrified of death, because death means I'm going to have to face justice for this guilt. That's in the heart of human beings, people. It's in the heart of everybody. And think about a person that carries that weight their entire life, and all of a sudden... There's this message of peace and rest that comes with the gospel. And we ought to, you can be free. You can actually be free. You don't ever have to have this burden, this weight, this, it can, it can actually be taken away. Isn't that amazing? Amen? Yeah. So we need to, we need to you know, again, this is the truth about Christ. There's a truth about, you know, our theology, all those things. But there's, a, there's an actual message and people say you can be set free. Okay, Christian love is convicting. Christian love is convicting. It contrasts the unbelieving. So there is a real sense when somebody is even public about their Christian faith, it's uncomfortable to other people. There's something uncomfortable. There had to be something uncomfortable for Simon in that room, seeing this woman broken before Jesus, that he did not necessarily feel that comfortable. Right? That's real too. And to acknowledge that. To accept it, to know, yeah, some people may feel uncomfortable here. And there's a, there's a sense in which it's okay for, to let them squirm. There's, it's okay, right? I mean, you don't want to need to overdo it, you know. But somebody that just kind of tells, oh, Jesus is cool, you know, Jesus is just all right with me. Well, that's not really what we're talking about here, right? That's really not what we're talking about. And so there is a place for that conviction to let that sit and let a person feel that uncomfortableness. Um, one publicly acknowledging Christ will make the unbelieving okay uncomfortable. And this was a quote. This is, this is part of this art. This is part of the art. Gentleness with the weak, severity with the strong. There's an art there, right? Like, like there's people that are really, really hurting, and you have to approach them different than the strong-headed. And you see this with Jesus. That's why, you know, you can see this contrast, right? Like he handles this woman differently than he does Simon. And there's some ways when he's asking Simon questions, he is, again, I didn't, I didn't know what else to think of it, but he is trying to provoke something. He is pushing on him. Now, I, I'm sure we've all done it wrong. Done, I've went wrong both ways, but that's the art of communication. And the more you're with people, and the more you're trying to understand people, it's understanding people's argument. And I think I've brought that up in here before, too. It's understanding where somebody's coming from. It doesn't mean they're right. But understanding how they arrived where they did is a, is a huge issue in communication with people because you understand the holes in their arguments. You understand how to go through that hole. You understand how to communicate. You understand how they arrived where they arrived. They've worked through some process in their mind arriving somewhere. And somewhere in that, if it's not the, the biblical conclusion, that some error has entered somewhere. 
And that error is the, error, is the thing you go after. All right? All right, well, I don't have any more here on this right now. Um, we've done this before because we just have a couple minutes. Might have to screen it, but is there any, any quick questions? Let's not try to do comments real quick, but if there's a question or something, and J.D., you can participate with me if you want. Just like, if you have some thoughts, because we do have like 10 minutes left, eight minutes left. Are there some thoughts or questions about these numbers of weeks that we've unpacked Jesus? There's more we can unpack. I, I don't know if we're going to in our class, but we could go to how he dealt with those that had infirmities. You know, there's the uh, centurion. There's, there's other discourse, discussions in the narratives. But the big thing was, I, th I think in what we've done for these, uh, I guess it would be three weeks, we've unpacked a lot. He asked a lot of questions. He told stories. He understood where people were coming from. He gave people dignity. He spent a lot of time in hospitality and fellowship with people, right? We could go through a whole series there. Um, as we began, a lot of Jesus' encounters were other people initiating with him. He was in settings in such a way that they came to him. There was as much encounter coming to him as he took the initiative to others. Interesting. Yeah, Al. And I'll repeat it up here, too, for the sake of the... I understand that the person you're witnessing to, this wasn't for a sermon, a Yeah, that's great. So I'll just repeat it. Um, <clears throat> trying to know what kind of question and, and story to tell in that moment. How do you know that is what you're asking, I think. Because there could be a lot of stories that go a lot of places. And you know, you guys, I don't. the best answer I can give you is, is probably two or three things. Number one, there is, I'm going to say it again, there's an art of this. There's an art of spending time with human beings and going, you know, I've told this story before. I mean, I know, I know you, Al, you tell certain stories that always you're trying to make a handful of points in your life as you get, you've gotten older in your life, and you tell these stories. And there's, that sort of starts happening. Is you, you'll, you'll end up by having three or four stories. And we'll get to it eventually. One of the key stories is even your own testimony, your own story. And you can make that in a brief sort of thing. That becomes a very powerful thing. I think the other thing I would tell you, though, is that any type of story I'm telling, I, and I've said this before, too, is I'm trying to get to the gospel. I'm trying to get to God, man, Christ, turn from your sin and trust Christ. I'm trying to beeline for the cross, as we've said it. And so whatever I'm doing, I'm trying to set it up in my mind's eye. You know, what I'm thinking about is how does this get me to this point of the gospel? So I... I I wish I could give you a better answer than that. I don't have one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, JD. Oh, yeah. Ask God to give you discernment. And then secondly, Jesus gave us a whole bunch of really good stories. So use his stories, and God's word never returns void. So all these parables, they're very memorable. We can repeat these. Tell the same stories. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can even say that. You know, I heard a story one time. Jesus told this story. Boom. Tell the story. Tell that in your own words, just breathe. That's a great, that's a great point. Good. Any other thoughts, questions? Yeah. So how do you respond when you ask permission? And they say no. What's your next step? <laughs> <laughs> Can I share with you? No. <laughs> well, I told you, in every, uh, people chuckled last week, a lot of times I'll go, why? <laughs> <laughs> and they will have a whole line. But if they don't give me permission, they don't give me permission. I'd say, okay, I'll, 
I respect that. Thanks for being honest with me. I appreciate honesty. And I, I, I would actually let that go. Because that would come back to something we've said in here too. A couple of you have said it's been helpful to think about it. It's the idea of Jesus' sheep. We're looking for sheep. We're looking for them to lift our heads. Yeah, I'm not really looking for an argument. I'm really not. So if they don't, if somebody wants to argue and fight, I'm like, I'm not. I mean, some of you may like to do that. I'm not really that interested in that. I, I am looking for people who want to converse and engage this conversation. And that's where inviting to dinner and all these other things come to a picnic, you know, a, you know, on any number of things you can do. It, it sounds like sales, and I don't like it in the term of sales, but it is true. It's a sense and it's a filter. You're finding people who are interested in taking another step. Hey, would you like to get together for coffee and talk? You're, you, and, and people take those steps, and as they take those steps, they're moving closer. So even that's a sense of permission, right? Like you, you watch this movement in a person. And they're becoming a friend, and they want to hang out with you, and they invite you to do things. And it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a great point. She's sharing the point that uh, certainly praying for people in those spontaneous interactions, but using tools, which we think of as a tract or something you can hand somebody. And it's very interesting how many, uh, how those, there's a lot of stories of people reading and doing those types of things and having experiences with those. So. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So Kimberly wrote out the gospel to a gal on the plane with her. She didn't have something in hand, or she wrote out the gospel to her and gave her a little letter because the gal wanted to sleep and the gal could read it later. And that's great. Good. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But whenever I'm sharing with Westerners, I think they push back and want to be more reason. They want to talk about yeah. philosophy. So what is your experience? Like, do you have a similar experience, or what do you kind of suggest? That yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's both and. I think, um, <clears throat> for me, you're asking me per my personal experience, so I'm just sharing that with you, and it makes sense to me that, yes, we deal a lot with kind of this reasonable philosophical p posture, call it apologetics. People are asking these questions, right? Um, but I still, I, I, I don't think it's, it's wrong to get to a place and say, here, you know, I'll, I'll even do this. Yeah, I've had to think that. That's a great question. What about evil and suffering? Great question. As I work that out, this is how I think about that. Boom, 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 boom. And there's a sense in which I'm putting myself in the discussion to try to enter in a conversation with them. Uh, of this is how I've, I've been able to, to work that out. Does that make sense? So I would say that there's a little bit of that. But I still think, um, you know, we're living in a pluralistic world. 
And there's no question to your point, we live in a university town, so we're going to be really exposed to the, the arguments, if you will. And so you kind of have to deal with that. And we will get to that, by the way, when we uh, talk about the, the apostles. In a few weeks when I come back, we're going to talk. The apostles had to do that. You know, there were times he, when, he was, when he was in Athens, right, he had to answer the philosophical questions of the day. But at the same time, he was with agricultural people, and it wasn't the philosophical questions of the day. And so we do customize that. So to your point, I, I suppose it would depend on where you're at and what you're doing. And who you're hanging with and even where you're at in the country. But I would say, yeah, in Lawrence, we deal with that a lot, right? Because there's this high view of it, the intelligentsia here. And so that makes sense. It's a great question. Yeah. Okay, you got three minutes, so we can do it, I think. Two questions. Oh. <laughs> well, I... Uh, Roman Catholics, I, I think I shared that a few weeks ago. I really focus on authority and justification. It's just what I do. How is a person justified? And in that conversation, usually in a personal way, they'll, they'll, they'll talk about Jesus dying on a cross. But I want to know, like, how many of your sins did you actually think he died for? Did he fight for 83%, 87%, 91%? Or did he actually die for it all? Can you actually add anything to the cross? And I usually go down that road quite a bit. So... And authority is always an issue. What are you going to go to? What's, 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 the, final, what's the final thing? And I, I actually believe our, our fundamental presuppositions is God actually exists. And because of who he is, he has the complete capacity to speak to us. And he gave us something, his word, that is the very word of God. And so sometimes there's a little bit of an apologetic around that. So that, your first question was communicating with Roman Catholics. That's where I spend my time. And again, I'm open if somebody else has some other methodology on that. But that's really where I spend my energy. I don't talk about all the other doctrines of, of Roman Catholicism as it seems like rabbit trails to me. And your other question, oh, just a prayer life. Yeah, I, I hope we, we're talking with some college students here um, for even the fall. I, uh, we've been using this term. I hope as a church we can continue to, in our own personal lives and as a church we can cultivate what I would call an evangelistic prayerful uh, culture. You know, if I asked each of you today, do you have five or ten people on a list that you're praying for? You know, that you consistently pray for. I mean, write those, write those names down. And when you come across people, pray and, and um, develop that. Now, that's a discipline. I mean, we can, I can be slothful in that. I can, you know, go for a few days and I'm praying about a bunch of other stuff and then I miss it. So it helps me to have that in, in literally a discipline of like a, a notebook. Well, uh, I have like a notebook I call soils charts. They're like different soils of people. And it's been really fun to be able to see people in, a say, a rocky soil and now they're open to talking. Or um, a person who's come to faith in Christ and now they're growing or now they're in the church or now they're even leading. We've seen some of that in our life where literally they're now a Christian leader and we've seen them go through this whole process. So that's really a discipline, though, you know, that you just have to develop and work on. And I hope as a church we can develop that as a culture that we really are praying for people and developing that. So do you have some thoughts about that in light of the church, J.D.? Is that... Okay. All right. It's 1015. God bless you. We've got worship in 15 minutes. Have some fellowship. I think I said last week that I was going to be done last week, but it was this week. So I'm done this week. I'm off for a few weeks. And uh, J.D. and Stephen will run with it for the next couple of weeks. So God bless you. This was awesome. Thanks.